0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. All right, here's my opening Mia Culpa. I guarantee that tonight is going to be boring. And the reason that I guarantee that is because Jeff Young wrote to me a little while ago and said, work is killing me. I'm not going to be able to be there. So I wrote back and said, that's okay. I don't plan to be very good, so you won't miss much. And he wrote back and said, promise? You know, so... so. So anyway, it's not going to be very good tonight, and it's definitely going to be boring. We are in Daniel 11. We are going to start reading right at verse 21, because verse 21 is the transition from the historic prophecies of the kings of the north and the kings of the south. We looked at all of that last week, and we saw how astoundingly accurate Daniel was in explaining what the kings of the north and the kings of the south were going to do. King of the north, we found out, was the Seleucid Empire, the Middle Eastern area. The king of the south is the Ptolemaic Empire, that is uh, Egypt, basically. And so the king of the north and the king of the south went through various battles and various agreements and various intermarriages And Daniel predicted all of that a couple hundred years before it actually occurred. And sure enough, you can put your history book of the Middle East right next to Daniel 11, and you can find that all those things actually occurred. And so we looked at that last week. And then at verse 21, Daniel's prophecy seems to take a strange shift in as much as we cannot locate a historic person that satisfies everything that we read from verse 21 forward. Now, last week, as we were finishing up, Daniel said, well, what about Antiochus Epiphanes? I have always heard that he is the fulfillment of those things. And so we talked a little bit about that, and we're actually going to start tonight on that subject, whether you call them Antiochus or Antiochus. Yes, that's the other way it's pronounced. So we're going to start by talking about Antiochus because he is a very important foreshadow of the final ruler to come. Basically, I can summarize the entire Antiochus argument by saying if Antiochus was the complete fulfillment of everything we're going to read at the end of chapter 11, then a couple of things have to have happened, which include the return of Christ. And if it had happened, then you wouldn't find New Testament people like Jesus himself declaring that he's still coming. You wouldn't have Paul writing that that man of sin is going to stand in the temple showing himself that he's God, that he's going to erect a statue, an idol of himself, that he's going to set up the abomination that makes desolate. Both Jesus and Paul spoke of the coming little horn character as being future to them and then as you read the book of Revelation especially if you recognize that the book of Revelation was written ninety ninety two AD after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD well then John's description of him still to come it's future to that time. So while I agree that Antiochus is a good foreshadow of what's to come he certainly cannot be the complete fulfillment so think about that as we begin reading at verse 21 we're going to read again until the end of the chapter and then because there's nothing more fun than hearing jim read i'll be reading some stuff out of my book a brief history of the future let's start reading from the bible verse 21 chapter 11 daniel And in his place, a despicable person will arise. In his place means in the place of the last king of the north, who is Antiochus IV Philippator, I believe is his name. In his place, a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred. But he will come in in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. And the overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered, and also the prince of the covenant. And after an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception, and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. The King James will say, with the small people. The phrase force of is added by the NASB translators. The original reading would be. He's going to gain power with a small people. In a time of tranquility, he will enter into the richest parts of the realm, and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute the plunder, the booty, and the possessions among them, and he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. And he will stir up his strength and his courage... Against the king of the south with a large army, so the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war, but he will not stand, for schemes will be devised against him. And those who eat his choice food will destroy him, and his army will overflow, but many will fall down slain. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil. And they will speak lies to each other at the same table, but it will not succeed, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. Then he will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant, and he will take action and then return to his own land. At the appointed time, he will return and come into the south, but this time It will not turn out the way it did before, for ships of Kittim will come against him, and therefore he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. And forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress. And do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. And by smooth words, he will turn to godlessness, those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. And those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many, Yet they will fall by sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. Now, when they fall, they will be granted a little help and many will join with them in hypocrisy. And some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine and purge and make them pure until the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. And he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers, or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god. For he will magnify himself above them all. But instead, he will honor a God of fortresses, a God whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold and silver, costly stones and treasures. And he will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign God. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him. And he will cause them to rule over the many, and will parcel out land for a price. And at the end time, the king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships, and he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. He will also enter the beautiful land, and many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand. Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt, the Libyans and the Ethiopians will follow at his heels. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him. And he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. And he will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. Continue reading into chapter 12. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life and the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness, they will be like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, conceal these words, seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth, and knowledge will increase. Okay, so you can kind of feel the transition there, can't you? Where we've walked right from the king of the north and the king of the south, right to the next king of the north. But as we start reading about him, We start seeing language about this is happening at the time of the end. And these things decreed for the end are going to happen because they've been decreed for this time, for this place. And then the chapter 12 begins with a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again. And Michael coming back and Israel being brought up out of the dust. General resurrection of Israel. And so we cannot say that those things happened during the time of Antiochus. Probably more than any other historic character, Antiochus Epiphanes is pointed to as the fulfillment and embodiment of Daniel's little horn. However, the details of Antiochus' career do not match the details of Daniel's prophecy. At the time of Antiochus the Great's death, the most legitimate heir to rulership would have been Demetrius' the young son of his brother Seleucus IV. There was also a younger son of Seleucus IV, also named Antiochus, who was yet just a baby in Syria. Antiochus IV, the brother of Seleucus IV, was in Athens when his brother died. When he received word that Heliodorus had murdered his brother Seleucus, he posed as the guardian of young Antiochus, who was in Syria. But through intrigue, Antiochus managed to secure the Syrian throne for himself. Young Antiochus was murdered by Andronicus, who Antiochus IV then killed, and thus began the reign of one of the Middle East's most wicked rulers. From 175 to 164 BC, Antiochus IV earned a place in infamy in Jewish history. The books of First and Second Maccabees, which are intertestamental books they're not you won't find them in our bible you'll find them in any bible that includes the the hidden books the apocryphal books the catholic bible includes them you'll find the historic accounts of the maccabean rebellion against the terror of antiochus epiphanes so this is of utmost importance in understanding how Antiochus IV Epiphanes has come to be confused with Daniel's eschatological little horn. Now, at that point in my book, I took a little time to quote from the Catholic Bible because the Catholic Bible actually declares that Daniel is a late-date forgery that was written during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. And so they say that's the way that Daniel knew these things. Here's the quote. This is from the New American Bible, translated by the members of the Catholic Biblical Association of America, sponsored by the Bishop's Committee of the Confraternity of the Christian Doctrine. (laughs) They wrote, this book takes its name not from the author, who is actually unknown, according to them. No one knows who wrote Daniel, even though the word Daniel keeps showing. We don't know. It could be anybody. But it's taken from his hero, a young Jew, taken early to Babylon. Strictly speaking, the book does not belong to the prophetic writings, but rather to a distinctive type of literature known as apocalyptic, of which this is an early specimen. Apocalyptic writing enjoyed its greatest popularity from 2000 BC to 100 AD, a time of distress and persecution for Jews and later for Christians. This work was composed during the bitter persecution carried on by Antiochus IV Epiphanes from 167 to 164 BC. And it was written to strengthen and comfort the Jewish people in their ordeal. And so as soon as that is stated right there in the Bible that you're holding, if you have a new American Catholic Bible, then they have just told you that Antiochus is the culmination of the prophecies of Daniel and that the prophecies of Daniel culminate at Antiochus because it was written during the time of Antiochus. Which means, again, and I have to state this emphatically, which means that Jesus himself was fooled by a late-date forgery because he referred to Daniel as a prophet, giving credibility to the idea that, unlike what they've written here, Daniel actually did write the book. And that it's not simply about some Jewish hero, and that we don't know who wrote it. So if Jesus, maker of heaven and earth, the one who knows absolutely everything, if he is fooled by the book of Daniel, then really how can we trust everything else that he says because he's given to being fooled by forgeries, And then the fact that Jeremiah also predicts a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again, which he calls the time of Jacob's trouble, which is identical to what Daniel describes at the beginning of chapter 12, which is identical to how Jesus describes it in Matthew 24, a time of trouble still coming such as never was or ever would be before. Daniel connects it to the time of that final king of the north. And so, again, Jesus would be fooled by thinking that it's still coming. He cast it out into the future when he apparently just didn't realize that it had been fulfilled during the time of First and Second Maccabees and all that stuff. He didn't know his Middle Eastern history. He just, he just wasn't up on it. So that's the first problem with the idea that it's Antiochus. Antiochus Epiphanes, which means glorified, a name Antiochus took to himself in an effort to make himself a deity, He broke the back of the Jewish nation by undermining their religious system of worship. He's widely known for having sacrificed a pig, one of the Old Testament unclean animals, on the altar of the temple and spreading the blood on the walls, desecrating the sanctuary. The cleansing and rededicating of the temple after the Maccabean victory is commemorated each year at the Feast of Hanukkah or the Feast of Lights. Inasmuch as Antiochus was the historic successor to the Syrian dynasty, and his short, tumultuous reign did include this attack on the Jewish religion, he's a convenient figure to impose on the following verses. But we must ask ourselves this question, can Antiochus IV Epiphanes be the little horn? Can he be the culmination of the demonic rulers who ever persecuted the Jews? The answer is, no, no, he can't. At best, he is Satan's counterfeit, designed to muddy the waters and confuse the prophecy. But he cannot be the final apostate world ruler whose reign ends with the second appearance of Christ. Is that obvious enough? Unless you're going to say that Christ came back during the Maccabean rebellion, and we all just kind of missed it. The official Catholic interpretation notwithstanding, Antiochus just does not fit the details. He loosely resembles some of the activities, but there are far too many holes in the actual history of Antiochus to make him a serious contender for that dubious honor. For instance, Daniel 8.23 says, in the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise insolent. And skilled in intrigue. Okay, now are we going to say that by the time Antiochus rose? I mean, he came to his end more than 100 years before the Grecian Empire fell. Nor are we able to say that roughly 160 years before Christ even walked the earth that somehow the transgressors have run their course. So Daniel's prophecies just don't fit Antiochus. As well, there are several references stating that the little horn will make war with the prince of princes, which is undeniably a reference to Christ. But no such battle can be found anywhere in connection with Antiochus. He was gone a full century and a half before Christ appeared. The Christian religion was utterly unknown during his reign And it's pointless to attempt spiritualizing these references to imply that Antiochus did somehow battle Christ. There's just no biblical or exegetical imperative that demands or even allows such an interpretation. But the most convincing single fact that I just keep going back to and keep going back to is Matthew 24, 15, Jesus saying, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee into the mountains. Jesus couldn't have said that if Antiochus was the fulfillment. So let's talk about this despicable person right there, starting at verse 21. Because I admit, and I admitted this last week, I'll admit it again, I'll admit it as many times as you want to hear it, I don't know the exact interpretation of everything we're about to read. I'm going to give it my best shot, but there just are certain details in the first 20 verses that we can say, as we did last week, this is the fulfillment, because it actually happened. Those things occurred in history, we can find them in history And so we can say, Daniel prophesied this, and it was fulfilled here. So there's not much vagueness or question there. But when it comes to everything after verse 21, it hasn't happened yet. Well, at least the bulk of it hasn't happened yet. And so it's impossible to say didactically, this is exactly how this is going to be fulfilled. But we can get some pretty good hints. Especially when Daniel talks about the Holy Covenant, which comes up several times. Here, let's put this idea in place real quickly. How are you going to recognize the little horn when he comes into his power? What is the one thing he's going to do that's talked about repeatedly in the New Testament? Yeah, miracles? Mm-hmm.
1: The temple would be
0: put back together? Why? treaty he's going to make a covenant he's going to re-establish an agreement a covenant a treaty with the people of Israel for seven years and then midway through the seven years he's going to break that treaty and he's going to set up the abomination of desolation and show himself that he is God but in order for him to actually set up the abomination of desolation in the temple there has to be a temple so he's going to make a seven-year peace pact we've Seen it in Daniel, and you continue to see it referred to in the New Testament, this 70th week of Daniel, that seven-year period that we can't find a fulfillment for anywhere in history. The 69 weeks of years came to their culmination when Jesus died, and we haven't seen that 70th week anywhere. But what we know is midway through the 70th week, he's going to cause the sacrifices and the oblations to cease, and he's going to set up the abomination. And so I am convinced, since all of the 490 weeks begin with a decree from Cyrus, later reestablished by Artaxerxes, it's an agreement with the Jews to go build their temple. Now, the Artaxerxes version of it includes build the temple and the walls, which are going to be built in troublous times. But all of those agreements, all of those covenants have to do with rebuild the temple. So when we read in Daniel that the little horn is going to reestablish the covenant with those people, what covenant contextually are we talking about? We're talking about the agreement to go rebuild the temple because there has to be a temple for him to go into. Does this all make sense? And so you're going to read a couple times that he's going to set his heart against that covenant, that holy covenant, that rebuilding of the temple covenant. Starting at verse 21, In his, that means Seleucus IV Philippator, as I mentioned earlier, in his place a despicable person will rise, on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred. But he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. Daniel's prophecy, without skipping a beat, drew a connecting line right from ancient Greece to the last days. And out of the estate of the kings of the north, this final demonic leader will arise. And this is perfectly consistent with what we saw with the ram and the goat. Out of the four generals who ruled Alexander's domain comes this little horn. That's a direct succession. Remember when I wrote it up on the board? There's a direct line that goes right from Alexander the Great right to the little horn. And so it makes sense that he would be the final king of the north straight out of the Seleucid Empire, straight out of Alexander's empire. Now, just as the primary visage of the beast in Romans 13 was a leopard likening it to Alexander, it's out of one of this general's territories that the final ruler comes. Daniel told us that the last kingdom would be a loose confederation of ten kings. Three would be uprooted, and the other seven were just going to give the little horn The power, And he will make a peace pact with Israel, reconfirming the covenant to rebuild the temple. And he will, quote, come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. That's perfectly in league with what we know about the seven-year peace pact. He's going to come in in a time of tranquility, making peace the whole world. Think about it for a moment. If you flip on the news now and you read that somebody has brought an actual lasting peace to the Middle East that includes letting the Jews rebuild their temple at the Temple Mount. You're going to do exactly what the Bible says. You're going to say, well, who is like that guy? Because this is something that people have been arguing with and dealing with since 1948, since the establishment of Israel as a country after World War II. People have continually been sending over emissaries and diplomats going over and saying we got to try to figure out how to make peace here but until they can bring the jews the thing the jews are most wanting which is their temple so they can re-establish their worship at this point they don't have any place that they can worship the way the bible tells them to worship and so they want In fact the temple mount faithful claim that they have the temple already in prefab state they're ready to go they're ready to put it up and as soon as somebody says do it they're ready to go yes sir i think this is a great display about how god's word is a revealed word because you would think as soon as the seven-year peace treaty is brought up and signed all of creation would jump up point and say you're the little horn yeah but they won't yeah it's like, how can you not know? Because <laughs> we won't be here, right? I agree. But if we do see that, then we would become mid-tribbers, right? <laughs> if we do that, I will rethink everything I know about pre-tribulationism. Yes. yes. If we're here and we see the peace pact and it's seven years and they're rebuilding the temple and we're still here, <laughs> then I'm firing up the microphone and telling everybody, okay, I was wrong. I I missed that one completely. So verse 22 and 23 of chapter 11 says, the overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered and also the prince of the covenant. After an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. So though he comes in talking peace, he's going to rule mercilessly. The phrase, the prince of the covenant, probably refers to him directly. The English Standard Version of the Bible renders that phrase, even the prince of the covenant, making the identification more clear. In that case, it's likely a reference to Daniel 9.27, which reads, And he will work dishonestly with them. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to the sacrifice and the offering. So on the wing of abominations, he's going to come in. Someone's going to come in who's going to make desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. That's what Daniel 9 says. And so it matches what we're reading here in Daniel 11. Verse 24 says, and in a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm And he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them. And he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. At the end of verse 23, we read that he will gain power with a small force of people. As I mentioned earlier, those italicized words aren't in the original text. So in this instance, I think that those inserted words actually change the meaning of the text. It means that he's going to gain power with the small people, the little people. How's he going to do that? By distributing the booty and the plunder in the air. It's socialism run amok. He's going to distribute the things that he's conquered, not keep them to himself, but give it to all the small people, and the small people are going to flock to him. And his name will be... Bernie, I only know that. That's the only part that I'm so sorry. That was just a cheap joke. But it made April smile, and that made it worth it, really. She doesn't laugh. She just grins, like, like OK, you think you're funny. Move on. And so they would be the recipients of the spoil and the goods that are plundered from the richest parts of the realm. And unlike his predecessors, this despicable person's going to share the wealth. And increase his fame and his popularity among the little people, the poor, and the have-nots. So then verse 25 to 27 says he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south, that's Egypt, with a large army. So the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war. But he will not stand, for schemes will be devised against him. Those who eat his choice food will destroy him. And his army will overflow, and many will fall down slain. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to each other at the same table, but it will not succeed, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. This is another place where we can see that history just doesn't match those details. The way that history perfectly matched the details of the first 20 verses. This idea that the king of the south is going to fall because schemes have been devised against him, there's nothing we can find specifically in the dealings in the Middle East that match those details. So, if it's future, being yet future, we cannot explain these passages with the same exactness with which we addressed the earlier portion of the chapter. But some details are clear. He's going to make deals and he's going to break deals. He's going to engage in battle against Egypt and apparently emerge victorious because of some in-house plots devised against the king of the south. And the two kings will lie to each other at the very same table. Haven't we seen that many, many times recently? Whether it's the Egyptians and the Palestinians getting together with the Jews, people sit at the same table and just lie to each other, just make agreements and shake hands and sign pieces of paper and... The next day, buses blow up. And so that's, it's very in keeping with what we're seeing in the Middle East at this very time. So God remains in utter control even as this wickedness erupts because God tells us it's for the end and the end is still to come at its appointed time. It's not going to come randomly. It's not going to come when God goes, oh, I didn't expect that. It's going to occur at the appointed time because God, as I keep on saying, is a God of set times. God is a God who has determined the exact time when things happen on planet Earth. In the fullness of time, we read, God sent his son. God is a God of set times. And this, again, speaks to his absolute sovereignty. So here again, these things that he's describing are going to come to their fulfillment at the exact time that God has determined they're going to come to their fulfillment. So verse 28 and 29 says, Then he will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the Holy Covenant. I believe that's the seven-year deal that he's made that we read about continually, that he's going to turn his heart against that covenant that he's made. He'll return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the Holy Covenant, and he will take action and then return to his own land. At the appointed time, he will return and come into the south, but this time it will not turn out the way it did before. So his heart turns against the Holy Covenant, which we know he's going to break three and a half years into his pact with Israel, despite his victories. At the appointed time, he's going to attack Egypt a second time, but things aren't going to turn out the way that he planned this time because ships of Kittim will come against him. Therefore, he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. Okay, now, during the time of which historic character, which historic figure, during which point in history do we find the abomination of desolation actually standing in the temple in Jerusalem? When was that? You're right, you're shaking your head. It hasn't been yet. And so we can conclude that this has not occurred yet. The New International Version of the Bible renders the expression ships of Kittim as ships of the western coastland. So that interpretation may have been influenced by the fact that the Dead Sea Scrolls indicate that the Essenes community believed that the Kittim, or the Kittim, Referred to the Roman Empire. So fearful that the Western forces and Roman forces are aligning against him. The despicable person returns to his home area and focuses his ire on Jerusalem. Making deals and paying special attention to those Jews who will join him as he dismantles his agreements. And he will send out forces to desecrate the temple. Proof again that the temple has to be rebuilt and he will interrupt the regular course of the sacrifices and they will set up the abominable image that christ warned about so starting at verse 32 we read by smooth words he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant but the people who know their god will display strength and take action those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many Yet they will fall by sword, by flame, by captivity, and by plunder for many days. Now, when they fall, they will be granted a little help, and many will join with them in their hypocrisy. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine and purge and make them pure until the time of the end, because it is still to come at the appointed time. So he's talking about Israelites. He's talking about the Jews, who God has said are righteous. They have insight, but they're going to fall in order to purge them, not to destroy them. In fact, Jesus, speaking of this time of God's wrath, says that God is going to shorten that period of time unless no flesh would survive. And so it's going to be a time of horrific trouble horrific warfare but God is going to protect his people the Jews the Israelites he's going to protect them by telling them where to flee what areas the antichrist or little horn is going to miss and the ones that are righteous and killed are going to be purged by that activity because again God doesn't lose those that are his and that's good to know If after everything Israel has done, if after all these thousands of years of their rebellion and chasing foreign gods and going to war with all the different nations, all the blood that they have shed, all the babies that they have killed, all the Sabbaths that they have skipped, all the sacrifices that they haven't brought, if you think about everything that Israel has done, their debauchery and their sexual uncleanness through thousands of years, if you think of all that and yet God remains faithful to them... To those that are written in the book, to those that belong to him so that Paul can write at the beginning of, I forget if it's Romans 10 or Romans 11. He says, uh, has God forsaken those that he foreknew? And what's the answer? God forbid. No. So my point is, if he's willing to forgive those thousands of years of the things they've done simply because they belong to him, because he chose them, because he said, you are my people, I am your God. If he's willing to save them despite all that, he can handle you. He can deal with you. Do you ever wake up nights? I wake up lots of nights. Do you ever wake up nights going, oh, man, I am haunted by the things I've done, the places I've been, the things I've thought, the opportunities I had to do right, and I didn't. i haunted by it. It's so good to know that God does not ever abandon those that he foreknew. And so if, I keep saying, if you could ever find somewhere where God turns his back on all the promises that he's made to Israel, then you have no confidence. You have no hope because God is capricious and God can make promises to Israel and then say, "Ah, never mind, or I didn't know you'd be this bad. And since I didn't know you'd be that bad, well, never mind. But the fact is, a completely, utterly sovereign God knew you were going to be this bad when he chose you. And your badness just proves your need of a savior. Mm -hmm. So again, God's sovereignty, God's consistency, God's grace is a a pillow I can lay my head on. Knowing that he does not forsake those he foreknew anyway I got a little preachy there for a minute didn't I (laughs) so starting at verse 32 by smooth words he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant flattery apparently is going to be his stock in trade those Jews who join him will worship him and act in opposition to the seven year peace pact but those who know God will accomplish heroic exploits. And they will teach and encourage the faithful, although hypocrites are going to infiltrate them. And they will suffer death by wounding and by burning. And Jerusalem will be held captive and plundered. And those who fall will receive only little help, but they will be refined in the fires purged and purified until the entire series of prophesied events reaches its culmination because the end is still according to God's set time. We're nearly done. At least for tonight. We're nearly done for tonight. Are you enjoying this or am I just boring the snot out of you? No bored snot so far? And that's really what it's all about. If Jeff had been here... I could have read this with so much excitement. I could have really pumped this up. But I promised Jeff I'd I'd be dull. (laughs) Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every God, and will speak monstrous things against the God of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished. Remember, God set times. There's a finish to the indignation. So he'll prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. In other words, despite all the bloodshed, despite the wars, despite the fact that he's going to prosper, despite the fact that he's going to say these horrendous things against the God of gods, despite all that, it's all in God's decree. God has decreed exactly what's going to occur. So when it does occur, it's not a surprise to God. He has decreed this for the end. Even though this evil king will exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and speak things against the God of gods, he's only going to survive until the indignation is accomplished. By the way, we've looked... In Ezekiel, and we've looked at Isaiah before at the descriptions of Satan and the fall of Satan. What was Satan's main problem? Well, he had zero humility and he got raised up in pride because his pipes and his tablets were built into him from his creation. And so he said, I'm going to put my throne in the place of the north. I will be worshiped as God. So, can you see the little horn doing the same thing? being demonically driven to go set up the abomination of desolation in the temple, showing himself that he's God. That's what Paul writes about him. And that's exactly what we're reading here, that he's going to say monstrous things against the God of gods and prosper until the indignation's finished, a phrase that I really, really like, because no matter what he says or how much power he amasses or how many times he breaks his promises to the Jews, In the end, God wins. Have you read the end of the book? I've read the end of the book. And in the end, God succeeds. And it's going to be a tremendous surprise to him, not to God, but to the little horn, when he finds out that all that demonic activity accomplished nothing as far as overthrowing the power of God. In fact, God is going to decree all of that for the purpose of purging and purifying Israel because Israel is always the center of all these prophecies he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or the desire of women nor will he show regard for any other god for he will magnify himself above them all there are commentaries out there that say that that phrase that he's not going to regard the desire of women if you look at that in an ancient hebrew context the desire of women was for every woman that she would be the mother of the coming messiah so some commentators say that means that he isn't going to regard christianity or the result of the desire of women there are also commentators who say he's going to be gay because he's not going to regard the desire of women 50 years ago, if we had been reading that phrase, it would have been easy to say, well, there's no way the world is going to flock behind a homosexual leader. That's never going to happen. Can you imagine it now? Because it's happening everywhere. There are plenty of active homosexuals not only in government around the world, but in the church. And so suddenly that phrase, which in Daniel's time, would have been abominable to write. Suddenly that phrase seems very acceptable in the society we live in. The corrupt king's going to break with the religious traditions of his past, not worshiping the gods of his progenitors, not the desire of women. And that phrase is likely, as I said, either a reference to the Messiah, because Hebrew women wanted to be the mother of the deliverer, But Daniel tells us that that wicked king will have no regard for religion, any God, or even Christ himself. And he's going to set himself as the only object of worship. When we get to the book of Revelation, we read that he's going to set a statue of himself in the temple. And then the false prophet is going to cause the image of the Antichrist to speak. And it's not just going to be Disney animatronics. It's not like Hall of Presidents. He's going to speak. And can you see people falling down in front of that, Mm -hmm. saying, who's like this guy, this false prophet? Well, they're not going to call him false prophet. They're going to call him probably by his name, Dave. I I, I just gave him a name. (laughs) Who's like Dave? But instead, he will honor a God of fortresses, a God whom his fathers did not know. And he will honor him with gold and silver and costly stones and treasures. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign God. And he will give great honor to those who acknowledge him. And will cause them to rule over the many. And he's going to parcel out land for a price. So what's important to understand is that the religion of this ruler will not be the religion of Israel. That's really important. This despicable king will rely on a foreign god. One of the first things that God said to Israel as soon as Moses came down off the mountain and said, I have these ten rules written with the finger of God on stones that God carved out. And the first rule was, you'll have no other gods before me. So what's he going to do? Foreign God. A different God than the Israelite God. So those who worship him are going to receive honor And military might, and if history is any indication, the promise of promotion and power and honor is a great motivator, regardless of how treacherous the cause might be. At the end of time, the king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships. And he will enter countries and overflow them and pass through and he will enter the beautiful land. What's the beautiful land? Israel. Israel, the land of Canaan. And many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. So at the time of the end, the king of Egypt's going to push at him and the kings of the ten nation confederacy are going to fight back the final king of the north is going to enter Palestine and successfully conquer at will however the mountain areas of Edom and Moab and Ammon will be protected and will be rescued from his onslaught this bit of detail is essential to understanding Jesus later warning to the residents of that very area adjuring them to be ready to flee and dropping a hint about where they're supposed to flee to. In Matthew 24, starting at verse 15, we read, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must must not go down to get things that are in the house, Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on the Sabbath, for then will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And unless those days had been cut short, No life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Those are Jesus' words. So not only did he cast it into the future, but he even told them, Daniel the prophet is your key. Daniel the prophet is the clue. But never mind, guys. Daniel's a forgery. He doesn't know what he's talking about. It was written during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes because the Catholics say so. Jesus is saying, pay attention to what Daniel says. When he says flee into the wilderness, they're not going to ask where. They already know. Moab, Edom, Ammon. It's already laid out in front of them if they pay attention to Daniel. And that's the key to everything. We're going to stop right there. Next week, Tom's going to be standing here Wednesday night. Come and support him. And then in a couple of weeks, we will wrap up and then we're pretty much done with the book of Daniel. And I don't know where we're going next. So if you have a, uh, an opinion, if you have a suggestion, then by all means, let me know. I'm thinking if I'm in a mood where I want to bite off a big chunk, that Ezekiel would be a good place to go, because he's a contemporary of Daniel's. And now that we kind of understand the Daniel thing and we understand this period of time during the Babylonian captivity, we could actually understand Ezekiel now. That would be fun. But I'm also kind of fond of the idea, since we're talking about the Syrian kings and Artaxerxes, I'm kind of uh, leaning a little bit toward the book of Esther because that also occurs during that time. And the very king that Esther's brought in front of is Xerxes, the king. And so that kind of ties right into where we're at as well. And then eventually we have to get to the end of 2 Chronicles and get to the rebuilding of the temple and the streets in troublous times. And that takes us to Nehemiah and Ezra. Ezra, by the way, found a copy of the law of God and he read it to the people while they stood on their feet the whole time. So next time you want to complain about my sermons... (laughs) Just realize you're at least in comfy chairs. We spent money for good padded chairs so you could sit. But one of these days, I'm going to make you all stand. I'm going to read the law because if it's good enough for Ezra, well, anyway. <laughs> make sure Jeff's here. Make sure Jeff's here. That's right. All right. All right. You can join all that? Yes, sir. Getting a good sense of what's going on in Daniel? That will help you if we do Ezekiel next. If you prefer... Esther next? Let me know. Because at some point, we're going to have to cover them both. And uh, if Jesus tarries, I'm just going to keep standing up here, plowing through this stuff. It's not about the details. In the end, it's not about the details. In the end, it's really just all about the same thing I keep saying every single week, which is God is sovereign. God's in control. God knows what he's doing. He's got history in advance. He knows how the world wraps up the same way he knew how the world was going to start. He knows your life, he knows every breath you take, he knows what your bills are, he knows what your sicknesses are, he knows what he's taking you through, and that is a tremendous comfort. So even if you don't come away from tonight remembering all the stuff you heard, just walk out remembering that God's got it. Whatever it is, whatever you're facing, whatever you're going through, he's got it. Make sense? What a godly serve. What a God we serve. Any questions, comments, feedback? Anyone but Micah? Oh, I'm sorry. As far as uh, Antiochus 15, do you think there's any chance or can you comment on the idea that this could be what's called dual fulfillment or near-far prophecy, that there is a near application historically in, Mm -hmm. in Antiochus 15, but largely, it speaks of becoming a little more. So it's kind of a way of having your take and eating it, too, uh, to be able to have both of those being applied. Do you agree with that? As long as you also agree that the Antiochus equation breaks down, that there's just certain stuff that you can't say, okay, that's Antiochus. But as far as him setting up an idol of... Zeus, I believe, in the temple at one point. I mean, he, he desecrated the temple with pig blood. So yes, I would say that being the next successive king of the north, he did some of the things that make him easily identifiable as the one Daniel starts to talk about. But then as we've seen so often in these prophecies, they'll start talking just like talking to the king of Tyre and talking right through him to Satan the same thing. He, he could start talking about Antiochus, but pretty quickly, that parallel breaks down, and, and he has to go on to other things that just don't talk about Antiochus. So yes, I think there is a... That's why I said he's, he's like a foreshadow of the one to come. So I'm okay with that, yeah. My problem... My my problem... I have so many problems. My problem is this foot. If you could... anyway. <laughs> My problem with interpreters who do too much about Antiochus is that they just stop there. They say, Well, Antiochus is it. And then, and then they just leave that there. And there's no way then to deal with, but what about what Jesus says in Matthew 24? What about Paul saying the abomination is still coming, you know, that he's going to stand in the temple and show himself he's God? What about John, 90, 92, 94 AD, writing about a a still-coming Antichrist in a time of trouble such as never was and stuff. And so they don't deal with any of that. They just make simple statements about Daniel being completed in Antiochus. And I don't think that's playing fair with the Bible because there's still more information to be had. So that's where I draw the line. Anything else? All right, we'll let you go. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Bye. Bye!